0: In the meantime, I just take my retirement and in installments, as I go. It comes from a theory that NOW is the best of life.
1: What's your fee for me?
0: Lady, I think you've got some whacked-up notion that you gotta make it with the captain before you get along on this barge. That's not how it goes.
1: How does it go?
0: Well, as far as I'm concerned, a tumble with a willing lady is nothing unless there's some kind of emotion involved.
1: Welcome to the magic lantern podcast an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them i am erica long
0: and i am cole Rolane. each episode of the magic lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us We are at episode 22 now, which is Erica's choice, so let's find out what she has for us.
1: I have chosen Darker Than Amber from 1970, and it was directed by Robert Klaus and adapted by John D. MacDonald from his novel of the same name, and it stars Rod Taylor, Theodore Bickel, and Susie Kendall. This story follows Travis McGee, who is the hero of the series of novels by John D. McDonald. And it follows Travis, who is our salvage consultant, and his friend Meyer. They're out fishing very late at night under a bridge when a young woman who is weighted down with an 85-pound dumbbell is thrown into the water right next
0: to them. You call McGee the hero of the series of novels. You think he reads more like that than an anti-hero at that point?
1: I do, and there's one thing I want to talk about later, which is his sense of outrage, moral outrage. So I do think that that pits him in the hero mold. Okay. But I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about related to that.
0: Once again, we start, as often happens with these, with snazzy score before any of the action even begins the yeah lo- the production company logo comes up and the score by john parker starts that immediately sets a 1970 tone the first thing it reminded me of there's a credit sequence in a film called raw meat with donald pleasance that i watched I made that you watch. with you yeah it's about
1: you made chuds me, made me watch it if it involves anything with chuds you're definitely gonna have to make me watch it
0: the opening sequence makes its way through a red light district, a guy buying his dirty magazines and brown paper wrappers, and it's this swinging, sleazy trip through Britain's dirty underbelly that this music evokes. This is not quite like that. It's much more Florida breezy, but with an
1: underbelly. But it for does sure. have
0: it does have that dark undercurrent.
1: So we start off with that score that definitely grounds us in the place of something pretty interesting is about to happen this isn't that florida breezy you don't hear seals and croft for example you know it's definitely nighttime adult world is how i think of it yeah exactly and we begin with lights which we then discover are the lights of a car and that car is racing along to find a spot to pull over on this bridge we see our two thugs in the car our first principal thug is the amazing william smith and then the second thug is robert phillips whose claim to fame for me is from mitchell <laughs> <laughs> so you know they're up to no good we see Susie kendall in the back seat of the car and she is bound so we know something's about to go down and she's wearing very little clothing as well And my favorite part of that sequence, besides the really interesting editing and angles, is the fabulous spitting into the Mm. uh, rear view side mirror.
0: It's the most effective protest she can make at that
1: point. She's pissed, you can tell, which of course we understand why.
0: In addition to all the principles you mentioned, right off the bat, it's also established how much Florida itself is going to be a character. In much the same way older films noir were dependent on Los Angeles cityscapes and those notable landmarks that you would see all around L.A., this starts immediately on the Overseas Highway Bridge, which would be a clear signpost to anyone from that area, from Fort Lauderdale, from the Keys. They know what that location is, and so it's already grounded in that Florida noir feeling rather than being located somewhere else.
1: You know, that... Reminds me of something I actually meant to ask you the other day when we were watching some sort of commercial in between some kind of streaming streaming service. And we see a lot of these commercials that involve driving and they'll show cityscapes. How many of those do you think that you could actually identify that way? If you don't have something iconic like Chicago, New York, a couple of other places, they mean nothing to me
0: really? these I've... days. Because of being on tour so much and traveling so much, maybe I have more of those in my head than the average person because I think I would recognize 15 or 20.
1: Oh, okay. I
0: would recognize Phoenix or Tucson or
1: really? Portland
0: or oh, okay. a number of places that might not be the, the big three or four.
1: Interesting question only to me. Okay. <laughs> anyway, we have this. The point
0: being, yes. geography is hugely important.
1: It is. It is. So we have the scenes in the car intercut with Travis and and Meyer in the boat down below. And so they're sort of minding their own business and doing this night fishing. And then suddenly, Susie Kendall, we don't know her name yet, so I'll keep referring to the actress's name, pulled out of the car, tossed into the water like a sack of 85 pound plus potatoes.
0: The feeling I get, or the way the scene reads to me is, They're just about to wrap up for the evening. Maybe they haven't caught anything. Maybe it's been kind of a slow night. Maybe they weren't intent on catching anything in the first place, and they were just going out to sit in the boat together. And all of a sudden, this thing comes out of left field, and not only is she dropped into the water right in front of them, but she catches McGee's lure and pulls his line straight to the bottom. So he...
1: I can feel it in my body when you say it. Has
0: to jump in and not only retrieve her, but get his lure back, too. (laughs)
1: And my other favorite part of that little section is the slow-mo toss into the water of Susie Kendall. It's this feeling like possibly a little bit more of a TV feel than a cinematic feel. But there are really interesting things happening.
0: Yes, I don't mean that to demean it in any way. I mean it out of love because I am a huge fan, like you are, of all of those 70s detective shows. Columbo first and foremost, which this is not quite like. But other things similar to this, like the Rockford Files, definitely, Canon, Macmillan and Wife, all of those things that were the ABC mystery movie of the week.
1: And we also grew up in a time where television got all of these films as well. And so I grew up seeing more things on TV than I did going out to the movie theater. Mm-hmm. So we had this opportunity to see a lot of interesting, odd things that you wouldn't get anywhere else.
0: To me, this movie feels like ground zero for the 70s detective show.
1: Well, and it's literally from 1970, so that was a good place to start. It's after the post-60s. It's before any sort of switch over, for me, to that more grounded anti-hero. That's why I was debating with you a little bit at the beginning.
0: So Meyer is actually the one who performs the life-saving maneuver. Meyer pushes the water out of her lungs after Travis pulls her out of the water, and then they return to the houseboat. The busted flush. Named after the hand that he won the boat in. Yes. In a poker game.
1: Or possibly maybe the toilet doesn't work. Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? But it is a nice houseboat that we'll come to see more of later on. A 52-footer. It's pretty fantastic. He's living a good life there, and so they've brought Susie Kendall back to get this barb out of her. And she identifies herself only as a Jane Doe. She will not say what her name is.
0: Two telling things in that sequence. She does not make a sound when they're cutting this huge barbed thing out of her leg. It's minor surgery, practically. It
1: is. There's no dancing around that. It's it's not any kind of a
0: fluff piece. And so she's clearly tough. She has clearly maybe taken a punch or two, even, based on... The characters that you saw her with that just unceremoniously dumped her in the bay.
1: And if she hadn't even had the lure in her legs, she just got thrown into the water, weighted down by <laughs> a barbell. Well, you know, much like my statement in a couple of episodes ago about a truth universally known and understood, which is that uh, never trust a man who has a beard and no mustache. If a lady gets tossed into the water with a barbell around her feet... She may possibly have done something bad to somebody.
0: Tellingly, like I said, she doesn't make a sound, so clearly she's tough. And like you mentioned, Jane Doe. She does not want to be identified. She does not want the cops involved in this, clearly. And so we are left to puzzle what is her background that has toughened her up so much and also cops are going to be bad news.
1: And through this, we see a little bit more of Rod Taylor. And by the way, Rod Taylor looks fantastic in this. He looks like he's... Anywhere from 40 to 45 in a great way, I say, as I'm looking at my husband who's 45 and looks pretty fantastic. Some men just get better looking. But Rod Taylor looks great in this. And I love him in this. I haven't seen a huge amount of his work, probably kind of the touchstones that everyone has, Mm -hmm. the birds and the time machine. I've seen both of those many times. And a couple of other small things, but it was really great to see him take center stage in this.
0: Far less buttoned down than normal, clearly.
1: Definitely. Much more
0: bohemian.
1: And it makes a lot of sense because he was an Australian. And so I have that sort of idea of a more kind of rugged, outdoorsy guy. And so he plays to that really well in this. So we see more of Rod Taylor in this. And he is going through her clothing along with Meyer to look for any sort of identifying marks. And they find a couple of things that indicate the stores that she might have bought these items from, as she is saying and trying to dissuade him from going to the police. And let's not report this. And as she's doing this, he starts to look more weary, which I really like as well.
0: So clearly Rod Taylor is a masculine presence in your estimation. Yes. Is it though... An outmoded idea of masculinity at this point. Has it aged well? This notion of who that character is, what it quote-unquote means to be a man, this tough and tender but with lots of chinks in the armor sort of character, is that a, a model that still works?
1: I think it's early enough to have not overstayed its welcome. What do you think?
0: I love the character because you hear me complain everyone who talks to me (laughs) probably hears me complain (laughs) about how they don't cast grown men for these roles anymore in my day and age or this happened this movie was made when I was born but I grew up seeing these guys still so the guys I'm used to seeing as action heroes Steve McQueen Lee Marvin Rod Taylor Who impress you as actual mature, grown men. Yes. Tough guys. Who've been
1: through something, and it reflects in their face, and it reflects in their manner, and how they treat people.
0: As opposed to now, everyone looks like children to me. Leonardo DiCaprio, no matter how old he gets, when he is 70 years old, he will look to me like a little boy dressing up in daddy's clothes.
1: Okay, do not get me started on Leonardo DiCaprio, (laughs) because I will hijack this podcast, and it will never end. I don't even want to talk about it but yes i understand what you're saying
0: but your ryan gosling's that type of character
1: they look like young men Mm -hmm. but not men
0: yeah experienced men
1: no i can't it 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 makes me feel like one of those characters in one of those movies who would turn their hands over
0: Mm -hmm. and and look at how soft they are
1: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah
0: you do have actors like that Russell Crowe, Tom Hardy, guys like that, that do make you think of full-grown men, but they are always relegated, at least Crowe is these days, to secondary roles. They are not leads anymore.
1: And these days, quite often, the villain, we don't tend to imbue those characters anymore like this with that sense of purpose, or outrage, or heroism. So I think Rod Taylor does really work and the character itself really works. And as I mentioned, Travis Mickey is the protagonist in a series of these novels. And I read Nightmare in Pink, which is actually the second book in the series. And Darker Than Amber is the seventh. Mm -hmm. And so there are bits and pieces that are woven throughout the series that reflect on his experience, which aren't super explicit. He's a little bit more of a mystery, but Things come up in, in an interesting way, which is he likely had some sort of military service. Korean. Korean. In other books, I think it was changed slightly to possibly be Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And we know that he is a man, again, with a purpose. And the things that I like most that I had mentioned before, this sense of purpose. He has this sense of optimism, but he believes in honesty And pragmatism, Mm -hmm. I think, above all other things. He doesn't do it blindly. He doesn't do it in the face of a person, you know, lying to him or who may not necessarily deserve it. I don't know that deserve is the word that I'm possibly thinking of. I know what you mean. Help, throw me a line here because I'm rambling.
0: He fits in that knight-errant mold of your Philip Marlowe's, but minus that jaded cynicism that Marlowe had.
1: Or in another character, he does—he hasn't deluded himself. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I was
0: I looking for. So late 60s, early 70s, Playboy vibe aside, that character still works, especially when he's in the mesh shirt.
1: Definitely. And in his short shorts. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Playboy, I don't even know about that. He doesn't seem that kind of fast and loose with another person to me. He seems a lot more guarded and... As we reflected in the, the section of a scene that we had done, he's looking for emotion again. He's looking for purpose.
0: True. I'm just basing that on a series of twenty-one novels where I think in practically each one he saves and romances a woman and then goes on down the good down point. the waterway.
1: Good point, good point. He's not a sleazebag though. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about him that reads That's creepy. predatory
0: or Gotcha.
1: So back again to the action of the film. McGee goes diving back to the place where they were at the night before and finds the weight,
0: Which will come in handy.
1: Yeah, a little bit of gaslighting later on. So he finds this weight, and there's a man who is kind of uh, shoreside who has seen him and reports it to the person we don't know who that is right at this moment.
0: Definitely not the cops, though.
1: Definitely not the cops. And somebody who is going to seek some retribution, most likely. The weight itself does give him some clues. And, and again, I like that kind of interesting experience that he realizes that it's a weight use specifically in physical therapy to rebuild muscles. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just fun details that I like to see someone who's been around again. Right. Who knows what's up.
0: This is the point. At which that outrage first rears its head
1: definitely because meyer asks him you really intend to get involved with this mm-hmm. and i love his line reading in this mm-hmm. i love his face rod taylor specifically and he says it was an 85 pound anchor for a 110 pound girl and he's mad. he's angry he's
0: clearly taking it personally so they pull up anchor on the houseboat
1: And we see our first blonde, tough, William Smith, who looks like a freaking giant in this. And he pulls up to the area where the marina manager lives, looking for some information. And then proceeds to beat the marina manager to death. No exaggeration.
0: How would you describe... That character. If you had to describe William Smith's character, just a a handful of adjectives. I'm going
1: to take a shortcut and use what IMDB says, which I think is perfect. Psychotic bodybuilder. Enough said.
0: It goes beyond that, even, for me. There's something happening inside him that is so twitchily intense that pure garden variety psychotic does not cover it.
1: Royd's rage doesn't cover it. Chemical imbalance doesn't cover it.
0: No, there's an who
1: knows. There's
0: an anger and more accurately I think a fury inside him that is on an almost cosmic scale it feels like.
1: The the stuff upon which great novels are made because that character will never stop.
0: No. Unless ever. he is
1: stopped. There is something driving him from within that twisted knot of evil demon worm that's floating around in that bloodstream that cannot wait to get out.
0: So Burke is the first casualty.
1: Burke is the marina manager. He has now been beaten to death. First casualty. Savage, savage, savagery. But in the meantime, Travis and Meyer and our Jane Doe are blissfully unaware of this because they are now out motoring away. And this is when Susie Kendall comes up to talk with Travis and she reveals what her name is. And they have a little bit of a philosophical discussion from the standpoint of here's my life philosophy witchers and we learn that Jane Doe's name is Vanjie and Vanjie hears about what Travis does and so I had talked about his quote-unquote job title which is salvage consultant so it's really interesting he's not specifically a private investigator per se no. he is a salvage consultant he goes out to find things that people have lost and if they want them badly enough he gets 50% commission on the job
0: which implies to me that he is operating in a gray area obviously (laughs) it's not quite lawful what he is looking for what he is retrieving someone who's willing to give up that much of their profit in whatever it is that he is going to get for them because they can't go get it themselves where does that fit to you in this moral code that you're talking about
1: Well, I think about some of the plot lines for some of the other stories, and they will often involve a missing person or a reputation even. We're not talking about lost jewels or cars or or money. Mm -hmm. It's often about people and some sort of larger concept. And this is where it gets a little bit beyond TV. Again, it's got a lot of interesting music. It's interesting camera work, interesting performance. And an interesting concept that's something you can't necessarily nail down or sink your teeth into. And I guess that that does fit a little bit more into sort of this anti-hero vein. Mm-hmm. You know, the missions aren't as clear-cut.
0: But it's still, from what you're describing, sounds like often honor is at stake in it some is. cases. And
1: he's often helping out friends, people to whom he owes a debt of some kind. To me, again, there's a sense of this sort of moral purpose, whatever that moral might be. And he's not necessarily going way outside the law. He's not, well, I say, I was about to say he's not hurting anybody. He does use force when necessary. Oh,
0: my God, yes. Yeah. This movie has, when we'll talk about this, the fight scenes, including one legendary fight scene. This movie does not shy away from violence.
1: But he's not the one seeking it out to inflict it.
0: He certainly dishes it out when it's necessary.
1: He does. He does.
0: In the end, after going back and forth and back and forth about it, McDonald ended up not liking the film. And I think it's that aspect of it, or that is at least one of the aspects of it, that led to that distaste because eventually McDonald described it as feral, cheap, rotten, gratuitously meretricious shallow and embarrassing
1: whoa i felt none of those things i
0: agree with all of it except the last two i don't think shallow i don't think embarrassing i think there are parts of it that are definitely feral and rotten and i
1: have no problem with that when when it's assigned to the character right it's not as though the film is made out to be that way no or exploitative it's not it's none of those things as a whole There are parts of it that seem to me true to the story, and that part of the story is feral or rotten.
0: I think depending on your attachment to the books and how much of a Travis McGee novel fan you are, you can find certain parts of it that are distasteful because it does not match up with what you had in your mind as a reader.
1: So how much of this do you think is generational? Do you think it's an older man uncomfortable with the way the 70s would regard this character, but we're watching things out of time and we also see it from that hindsight?
0: I don't think so. I think he just had a very specific idea of that character in his head and it's his creation and he wrote 21, rumor has it, 22 books. There's a, a lost Travis McGee book, the Black Book. And so he, better than anyone obviously, knows what this character is about. He is the most legitimate judge of who that person is because it is entirely his creation. But I think it's not a generational thing because in casting it, at one point they were considering Robert Culp, whom MacDonald dismissed as too wispy and too elegant. So he knew there was a toughness and a rawness in the character Mm -hmm. that he acknowledged and appreciated. This just went over the line for him in certain places.
1: And then to us is what makes it so fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. I would I just, say not having read all of those Travis McGee novels, I'm taking it at face value as a piece of pulp cinema in which case it's fantastic.
1: Mm-hmm. Can I do a little mini diversion right now based mm-hmm. on book series? So my first and second jobs were in libraries and the very greatest feeling is to look at your cart and see nothing but sections of book series because they are the fastest and easiest things to put away. So (laughs) bring on Travis McGee, bring on Ruth Rendell, bring on whatever, just slot those things in and you're done. Anyway, diversion over. And so back once again to the action, we've got Vanjie and Travis talking about how they see life and Travis disabuses her of any notion that she's got to essentially put out to make her way in this world that she finds herself in.
0: Which is clearly what she's used to. You can tell that this character has been living for quite a while a life on a completely transactional basis.
1: And based on that commodity that I have is my body, Mm -hmm. really. But Travis talks about looking for emotion instead. And then we transition through kind of life settling in a little bit on the boat, and Vangie is dancing, and this is when she gets Meyer involved. So this is when I want to really talk about Theodore Bikel, who will eternally have a soft spot in my heart, not just for the uh, billion episodes of television that he was on that I saw probably every single one growing up, but... He originated the part of Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of the mm. Music. <laughs> and Edelweiss was specifically written for him because the composers realized what a fantastic folk singer he was, that that's really what he was known for. Mm-hmm. And so they wrote the song for him to play, accompanying himself on the guitar as he sang it. So that's where I put the little uh, dried rose in my journal and close it up. <laughs> Theodore Bikel, Wonderful.
0: It is at this juncture of the film that we discover exactly what it is that she is in trouble for. The life she's trying to escape and that she was being punished for trying to escape was because she was part of a scam in which she, William Smith, and a couple of other people would roll unsuspecting rich guys on cruises, drug them, steal their money, Dump the bodies overboard, no corpus delecti.
1: Yeah, not just rolling, murdering mm-hmm. as well. So it's pretty serious.
0: So while she was not, strictly speaking, the killer, she might as well have been in terms of the literary convention of meting out punishment to those responsible for others' deaths.
1: And you have to think if you get involved with a character like William Smith, he's playing Terry Bartell in this. You have to know some bad, bad shit's going to go down. And then you watch it go down. So there's she can't hide behind any sort of, oh, I didn't know what was happening or I never saw it being done. It's pretty clear. But we see this happening in these sort of intercut flashbacks. Mm-hmm. She's really still at this point reluctant to give a lot of detail. And then here's where I have a big problem with her as a character. I mean, not for the first time, but... She's asked to do the dishes on board the boat and she just flatly refuses as if it's some sort of, again, terrible request or she's been asked to commoditize herself. And that always bugs me whenever any sort of device like that is used. Why do you think you're too good to do the dishes? Why do you think somebody's asking you to prostitute yourself to do the damn dishes? Just do the dishes.
0: I think it works really well in this regard as a character detail, though. It's very telling. This whole sequence tells you a ton about the space that this character occupies, both in real life and in her own mind. Mm -hmm. And it's very conflicted. She says a couple of things in response to McGee being somewhat tender and sensitive to her, saying, I wish I'd met you five years ago. Acknowledging at this point that even she knows it is too late for her. Him being a salvage expert, there is nothing in her to salvage, she feels like, at this point.
1: And she's still a very young person. You know, she's not a withered crone anymore.
0: And she clearly, though, thinks that she may well be better off dead.
1: So, yes, a good use of explaining character, and a character trait that bugs the hell out of me.
0: (laughs) Is Susie Kendall the right person for this part?
1: Did anybody else come to mind that you thought would have done better, different... Job.
0: Right off hand, no. I thought she was excellent. I thought she was very well cast because she occupies that space that's not quite glamorous. Like a higher tier celebrity would have been, it would have been distracting to put someone else in that slot. But when you look back at Susie Kendall's filmography and just the things that she projects in this character, it feels like she knows very well what it's like to have done some things you're not quite so proud of, maybe for a role, maybe for something else.
1: And do you also know that you maybe don't have it in you to be exceptional Mm -hmm. necessarily? You Mm -hmm. know, So you've got this sort of middle path that you're following, and it's not always the nicest.
0: No, I thought she did an excellent job in this, conveying all of those things that you would think about if you had to live that life. There's a scene coming up in a dress shop where the girl working the counter says to McGee, I didn't think you would hang around with someone like that. So clearly other people have her number too. It's clear what she is, who she is. She's not putting anyone on. She's a hustler. Everyone understands that.
1: I think if anything, she looks a little too good to be a hustler to me, but there've gotta be really good hustlers out there.
0: And there have got to be those that, at some point, it's early on in the game for them. They have not withered. They have not been taken apart inside, so much so that it exhibits itself physically. She's clearly emotionally withered, but chances are she hasn't been doing it long enough. You get that impression when you meet her friend later that introduced her to this whole scheme. Yeah, Dell. She's new to the game. So it makes sense that she still looks that good
1: Okay Alright, so casting is over for Darker Than Amber <laughs> And we've selected Susie Kendall Okay We come down to a scene where we definitely see Travis's physicality mm-hmm. Because Vanji very late at night Has sort of uh, Snuck up upon Travis And he doesn't know what's going on And his instincts kick in, I'm assuming And probably previous training And he basically takes her down He flips her over. She's down on the ground. And the suggestion is she has come up to essentially offer her body again. And Travis, he just seems, again, just kind of tired and sad by this whole thing. And she says in this point, do you think it would have been better if you hadn't been under that bridge? That sense, again, I'm probably of use to no one. Mm -hmm. Better that I would be dead. And this leads to a suggestion of a sex scene. It's pretty fun because he is unzipping this raincoat that he has given her to cover herself up. And it catches at the little pole at the bottom and then that goes through. So it's it's a lot more fun than a train going through the (laughs) tunnel. (laughs) It's pretty sexy. But we don't see any more of it.
0: So the suggestion is that they have consummated this relationship. Him finally getting her to understand... This is not necessary. This is something we do if we want to. In the afterglow, she goes to retrieve some money at her place that she left behind.
1: And the suggestion to me is this is sort of going to end things. This is going to allow her to get out mm-hmm. if she's got this money.
0: Of everything. Without Ma- this life. With McGee as well. Yeah. It's goodbye move, to him. move else. on down the road. As things often go, it doesn't quite work out the way she intended.
1: She's actually spotted by another of these series of moles that are around town that gets reported back to Terry and to Griff.
0: How do they afford this network of Baker Street irregulars that have their thumb on the pulse of Pensacola?
1: I'm assuming it's all knuckle sandwiches. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, yeah, give me this info or your place is going to burn to the ground tomorrow. And I would believe them.
0: So someone tells them she is alive and out and about. And it doesn't take them long to track her down and finally dispatch her completely. In one of the most shocking sequences I think I've ever seen, William Smith pulls her off the street and gives Griff the signal, who comes along speeding in his car. The next thing we see, it cuts to the inside of a diner or coffee shop, restaurant, something like Uh, that. The ice cream parlor, I think. And it's clear when her body shoots through the plate glass window that Bartell has thrown her body in front of the speeding car, which has then smashed her through the front of the building.
1: Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. It gives me a little sick to my stomach feeling. It's very graphic. Okay, John D. MacDonald, I guess you're on to something. But <laughs> there are no shortcuts taken mm-hmm. in this kind of life. It ends terribly because it's gone terribly.
0: All of which she had a premonition of, clearly.
1: And back at the boat... Travis relays two terrible pieces of news to Meyer. One is that Burke has been beaten to death. He was the marina manager. And that number two, there was a hit and run of a Jane Doe and she's in the morgue. And so it doesn't take incredible math to figure out what is going on. And in Travis going to the morgue to see if it's actually Vanjie, we have again that sense of outrage with Mm -hmm. the super creepy morgue attendant who has pulled the sheet down to reveal her upper body and Trav says uh, no that's not happening just spells it out to him and he doesn't walk that crooked path that a lot of these other people do there's a right way to do things
0: The guy was a creep <laughs>
1: gross
0: <laughs> his response to that was essentially look it's part
1: of the job Yeah, I'm
0: here all day I've got to find a way to amuse myself it's a perk <laughs> I don't
1: get medical benefits I get to look at mutilated corpses of naked good-looking ladies Yeah, it's gross. It's really gross. And Travis doesn't like it. And then this is when he goes into the boutique. This is where Vanjie had bought some of her clothes. So he's trying to track down more about her life to try to figure out how he can put these pieces together. And this is what you had mentioned a bit earlier where he's talking to the woman who runs the boutique. Mm -hmm. And this has my single favorite line reading in the whole movie. He realizes something's up when he's asking about Vanjie and she's kind of being a little bit vague and sort of closing off. And he says, it was like I offended you. And I love the way he does that. You, you're going to have to go watch it to take my word for it. Mm-hmm. But it is great.
0: So the outcome of all of this gumshoe work is that he comes up with an address. And he goes to her place to try to work out what has happened to her. To try to find the money to get the general lay of the land.
1: Because she has mentioned before, she's hidden it so well that nobody could possibly find it, really. And clearly she was on her way to it, so she doesn't have it. So it's still there somewhere. And at the apartment, we see Griff working out. Gross. (laughs) He's wearing a gross orange Speedo. He has that gross haircut that thankfully died away that looks like the hair that you set on top of the little Lego men.
0: He looks like if Vulcans could participate in Mr. Universe.
1: Oh. That doesn't begin to describe how gross it is. Well, Mixed with J. Edgar Hoover.
0: It doesn't address how oily he is, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) So he's working out, and Travis is trying to evade him. He goes into another apartment, and he decides to go back later on.
0: This is where we first catch sight of the maid.
1: And she's been working for Vanjie, and so Travis speaks with her to Again, figure out if he can get any more info, especially on who these other two men are and how they fit into this story. And again, another element of Travis's outrage, there are these three gross young white guys who decide to one of them, the ringleader, is going to hassle this black maid and this white man. We're again in Florida in 1970, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: not a super progressive time. And Travis uh, takes him out, takes him off the board.
0: I like the way he does it in that it's not super showy. There's nothing over the top about it. There's a nice little realistic touch that obviously one of these guys is a real shitheel, but the other two guys that are with him aren't so keen on what he's doing either. Yeah. Because after Travis bounces his head off the table once... His friend to the far end basically says, "Would you just not be such an asshole all yeah. the time?" and I like you had to, it coming
1: definitely. And I like the other touch that we don't see what Travis says to him. That's actually we're watching it through the window in the diner. We're out in the street, so we don't see exactly what he says to him, which is kind of fun. I'm sure tell it was us everything.
0: Very respectful.
1: <laughs> so Travis goes back to the apartment, and it's dark. And after a while, he does locate the money. And then on his way out, Griff has been waiting for him.
0: Griff catches him, drives him to this remote spot where he's going to have Travis dig his own grave. Yeah. He gives Travis the shovel. Travis goes to work on the beach, making a hole big enough to put Travis in.
1: A super cool dog wanders up, which I know is your favorite part.
0: Provides a distraction, which kicks off the first huge fight set piece. And... I have never seen, especially in films from this era, a fight that truly puts across the urgency of this is life or death, the way these two fight scenes in this movie do. I wholeheartedly believe whoever wins this fight will live, and whoever does not will die.
1: Definitely. And we haven't said it before now, but there are clear stakes in this movie Mm -hmm. for everyone, and they are life and death. And so, again, as I'd said a minute ago, there are no corners cut in this. You can't talk your way out of it. You can't weasel your way out of it. It's going to happen one way
0: or the other. In this case, it goes Travis's way. Obviously, since it's not a series of Griff novels, Travis McGee wins.
1: Oily Mr. Universe J. Edgar Hoover. Travis wins, and Griff is the one in the hole. And the dog wanders away.
0: This moral code that you talk about all along the way up to now, all the interactions that you see that he has with people and this entire network of informants and contacts that he's made are all 100% based upon that code, on him being honest, on him being a straight shooter, on him being someone you can absolutely count on.
1: Travis, we're talking about.
0: Right. And he uses that now to enact a cockamamie scheme. For me,
1: uh, yeah. Um I'd be interested to read the novel and see how closely they stuck to that, but it's one of those it's a it's a look alike, we can say it. How what?
0: It is kind of a weird choice. The plan now is someone happens to know someone who looks exactly like Vanji, that they're going to sneak on board one of these ships to gaslight William Smith, like you mentioned. It's actually part it's a plan B. That's the backup plan.
1: It's true, and to their credit, it doesn't totally get used. So, yeah, it's cockamamie, but it is sort of in the background. If I can't get this, I can't. If I can't pull this one thing off, well, we'll we'll do this.
0: So, action shifts from Florida to Nassau.
1: Let me say a moment before when he brings Meyer to see the Vanjie lookalike. This is the moment when people who do not wear glasses don't seem to understand how glasses work, <laughs> and so this girl, she's an actress, uh, kind of model person. She puts she's her glasses. She's working as a mermaid. As a mermaid, she comes out and puts glasses on, only to take them off one second later to look at something. <sighs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Anyway, sorry, bothers me. But the plan is they're on this cruise to hook up with Terry. They're headed down to Nassau, but everything's going to unfold on the way back. So, a specific part of this plan involves getting into Terry's room on the cruise ship. And Travis meets Dell, who is the second female counterpart in this scheme, in this hustle scheme. And he's essentially offering her a lifeline out of this work. He's going to get rid of Terry. She's going to be okay to move on because she's clearly frightened of him as well, even though she's been in this game much longer than Vanjie had. Mm. She brought Vanji into it. But he says something that I love when she's also doing that same sort of, oh, is this plan going to work? Why do you even want to do this for me? It certainly wasn't because Vanji said so because I never did Vanji any favors. He basically says, I don't work with dummies and I don't back losers. So that to me is the hero less than the anti-hero part of him because he's no dummy himself. And he's talking about this plan with Meyer as well. And the essence is it sounds feasible, but will it work? And again, I really appreciate the pragmatism that goes through the story.
0: So the wheels start turning on the plan and they're in a bar, the lounge on board the ship where all of the pieces are being put into place. Dell is at a table off to the side watching Terry play slot machines homicidally even the way he plays slot machines is the most intense thing i've ever seen
1: and he's a racist (laughs) that too if one weren't worse yeah he's a terrible human being
0: travis slips the waiter some money to keep terry's drink glass full so he can go prepare put the weight that had been tied to vanjie in the bathtub for him to discover later Meanwhile, Terry is drinking his drinks, Dell is sitting at the table minding her own business until Travis brings the room key back, slips her the room key, she goes down. The whole time this is happening, Bartell is catching this stuff out of the corner of his eye and, as if he needs anything to stoke his fury, is somewhat jealous. But he's getting angrier and angrier and drinking more and drinking more.
1: Travis has told Dell as part of this plan to go down and wait in her room for him. He's going to take care of Terry separately. But he doesn't know that in between that time, Terry has actually gone down with all of this jealousy and psychosis that he's feeling, and he's actually killed Dell. So we're down now to just Terry and Travis, and then all hell breaks loose.
0: Travis returns to his room, where she has been holed up, discovers her body, and just at the moment of realization that she is dead, William Smith comes barreling out of nowhere, and this legendary fight scene starts.
1: Yeah, the the worst-slash-best part, he pulls Dell's dead body off the bed and throws it onto Travis.
0: Saying, you can have her. Take her. You can oh. keep her.
1: <laughs> and it is a legendary fight. a Legend or true is that... William Smith actually threw a punch, maybe not realizing it. And that punch got thrown back and teeth were broken.
0: One of them actually hit the other. And then from there, all bets were off. I don't think on
1: purpose. I don't want to say. No. But it happened. It
0: happened. And then everything escalated. It ended up, as the story goes, William Smith getting three broken ribs. Rod Taylor getting teeth broken out. The blood that you see all over Rod Taylor's shirt is real.
1: And there's a huge amount of it.
0: A broken nose, a real bottle smashed over Rod Taylor's head. There is nothing refined about the choreography of this piece from a director who would eventually direct Bruce Lee and the stellarly choreographed Jim Cotta.
1: I was going to reveal that later, which we own both of those, by the way. Jim Cotta we watched two weeks ago, maybe.
0: There is nothing so graceful as the Thomas Flair going on in this stateroom.
1: It's nuts, and it goes out through the door, over the cruise ship, down the—I don't know—the the gang. gangway, mm-hmm. gangplank, whatever you call that. I think he murders maybe ten more people <laughs> on the way down. The way down people the- get thrown over the sides of things. People get knocked down. Everybody's covered in blood. Terry's hairpiece comes off, and it's there's nothing more frightening than seeing Hulk Hogan covered in blood mixed with <laughs> an alien. It's, Pretty crazy.
0: Here's where the lookalike scheme comes in. Yeah. Finally.
1: I'm glad that they didn't go through a bunch of machinations to wedge that in, but it shows up at the second. No, I mean, I think it's much more interesting that the plan goes all to hell and there's this crazy-ass fight. And then you see her for a second.
0: Momentarily distracting him. He sees her as if she's a ghost, waving from the pier. And that's where he's trying to get to as he is mowing through... Vendors, tourists...
1: Standers by.
0: Trying to get to Vanji to kill her yet again. He thinks he's killed her once. Now he's going to kill her twice. Yep. That's how much killing he needs yeah, to do. I believe it. Fortunately, she's on the other side of the fence. He cannot breach that fence before both Rod Taylor and the police finish him off. Rod Taylor delivers the coup de grace just as the Miami Harbor Police show up.
1: Yes. So, bad guy vanquished not dead no vanquished maybe question mark at the end old style i would not count on
0: this being over until i saw his dead body
1: yeah true
0: but it's back to the best of the good life now
1: it is after a
0: trip to the dentist
1: they're back <laughs> they're back on the boat and Travis is relaxing, and Mara may, who is the lookalike character, also played by Susie Kendall, so not a big stretch, she comes in to say, hey, they're having the big party over at the other boat where the Alabama Tigress is, and don't you want to jump in? And he's clearly still needs some time to get over the loss of Vanjie and this entire crazy thing that went down. He basically says, it may take a little time, and then movie over. Mm-hmm. Really?
0: The end to me really pays off how well established his code is all of this time. The best of life now, in its most pure form, would be hedonism. So he clearly doesn't quite live by that, even though he says it a couple times. He considers the best of life to have more meaning to it, more depth than just pleasure immediately had. And that's where we end. Really knowing that about his character, which I think is a perfect way to go out for this. We've had our two-fisted action. We've had our femme fatale. We've had all of these things that happen in a good pulp story. And our hero, which I agree with you, not anti-hero at this point, firmly gets that character established by taking that time and having to process this. A lesser character would have made some tossed-off remark, gone to the party... Done whatever, but... Thrown
1: back a couple of drinks and banged Maramay and whatever.
0: Celebration is premature for Travis McGee, though. That's not where he is. Great ending, I thought. Agreed. Of all the choices you've made so far for the episodes in which you've picked the titles, this is the first one that I would say probably qualifies as cult cinema. How come it took so long to get to one of those, and why did you pick this one?
1: Well, and we should say why it's so difficult to get. And we got really lucky that we saw a great print of it at Austin Film Society. Mm -hmm. It is available on YouTube, which is how we rewatched it, but clearly it was edited. There were a couple of minutes shaved off of it. So it's really difficult to get. It didn't make a big splash when it was released. It had initially been set as an R rating and was changed to a PG and it was shown on television, again edited. So I had never seen it before and it made such a huge impression on me. All I can refer back to are all these elements that we've mentioned throughout this podcast, the feral nature of it, the ferocity of it, the intriguing character so wonderfully played by Rod Taylor. The unexpected, at least to me, nature of how the story flows and how consistent it is to the character and the time. How it looks like it could have been made for television, but there are so many interesting pieces to it. As I had mentioned, fantastic angles and interesting delivery of action throughout. It doesn't look like it was made for a million bucks, but they acted the hell out of it.
0: Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I was thinking about. About detective stories in general, he's not a P.I. like you mentioned, but it is essentially a detective story. And detective stories are seldom revolutionary. What makes them succeed, they rise or fall on the alchemy of the writing and the performances. Are these people given interesting things to say and do, and do they do them well? And in this case, across the board, I would say it succeeds on those counts
1: definitely, I think I used this metaphor before, but it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's not too heavily dialogue driven. There's just enough to keep us interested and hooked. No one ever overplays their hand or does something inconsistent to who they are. That story is meted out to us. And there's no opportunity to think, oh, that was poorly written. It's just fascinating throughout. And Let me try to also answer that question of why did it take me so long to get to a cult film? I don't have an answer. We try to approach this podcast by making our selections based on what we're excited about in the moment. Mm -hmm. And what was kind of stymieing me for the last couple of weeks was wanting to see things that I couldn't get to. And that was one of them because it is really difficult Yeah, it doesn't exist
0: on DVD. I think there's a VHS VHS. of it that runs for maybe $50.
1: And you discovered that it was on YouTube. Fantastic. So I was feeling wanting what I can't have. And that's the first thing that came up because when we saw it at Austin Film Society, it was in my top three of what I saw that year.
0: Mm -hmm. You can get it on the gray market, much like Travis's business. (laughs) There are. DVD purveyors that will make a copy of this for you if you want to spend between 10 and $15. And it is well worth tracking down one of those people and getting that. Normally, I would not endorse piracy necessarily. But there's no indication that this will ever see the light of day in any other home video format. So do what you've got to do to find it because it's well worth tracking down.
1: And I still recommend watching the YouTube version.
0: Even though it's edited so Even
1: though it's edited.
0: Four minutes or so taken out of it?
1: Yeah, and we had some ideas of where we thought some cuts might have been made, but it's not one of those grossly egregious cutting jobs, and it's not as though people have overdubbed over curse words or something like no, that. No, and they not certainly that bad. haven't
0: cut back the violence. No. Well, since that one is so hard to come by, why don't you recommend this one that is not so hard to find?
1: Okay, so my recommendation is from 1975, so a few years after this, and it is Night Moves with Gene Hackman and Melanie Griffith, directed by the great Arthur Penn. And this is the story of an actual private detective, L.A. private detective Harry Mosby. He is hired by a client to find her runaway teenage daughter, who is Melanie Griffith in the story. And things go downhill, (laughs) as they often do. (laughs)
0: I have something that goes similarly downhill in that I'm going to recommend Cape Fear from 1962. Fantastic. Directed by J. Lee Thompson and adapted from John D. MacDonald's novel The Executioners. It has that paragon of virtue, Gregory Peck, who is an attorney that has sent a man to jail. It is his misfortune that that man is Robert Mitchum. Definitely. And doubly his misfortune that that man is now out of jail and looking to exact his revenge.
1: Only worse could have been Terry Bartell, probably.
0: (laughs) And over the course of this psychic siege that he has the family under, he pulls Gregory Peck further down and further down and further down until he reduces him to the animal that Mitchum is as well. And my favorite thing about the whole movie is when Mitchum says the word counselor... He says that word in a way that feels like he is slowly sliding a knife in between your ribs yeah. and looking you dead in the eye while he's doing it. It is one of the most menacing performances I've ever seen. It is amazing.
1: So once again, as we are wont to do, we have given two fantastic recommendations, <laughs> night moves in Cape fear, the original.
0: And that brings us to the end of episode 22. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group and an Instagram page just under the podcast name. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I wanted to say thanks this time to some people who have either shared links to the show or have given us feedback in the last couple of weeks. Mateo Boscarol, the guys at FUDs on Film. The Drunken Dork Podcast, The High Concept Podcast, Travis Trudell, Keith Enright, Micah Madsen, Jeff Duncanson, Dalen McDougal, and Doug McCambridge all either gave us great feedback or shared links to the show, and we certainly appreciate that. We are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, as well as Google Play for you Android users. If you'd like to go to any of those locations and leave us a rating or review, we would certainly appreciate it. Anytime you do that, it gets us in front of more people, which is always good for us. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.